You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I'm uh, very excited to have this gentleman on my show today. I'm not only a big fan of the band he was one of the founders of, Devo, but he also has a new song out called I'm Gonna Pay You Back with a really cool video, and I found out that he has also been directed commercials and videos, so I want to talk about that process because that just intrigues me because I know TV commercial directors in L.A. who love it, and it's a hard gig to get, and my guest is Jerry Caselli. How you doing, Jerry? How you doing? Good. Um, I want to tell me about the new song. I want to hear about what it's about and the video. The video is just cool. I mean, you know, in, in this day and age, I mean, I'm, I'm 57, so I'm, I'm an MTV kid. And MTV team, and I love videos. And now videos aren't. This is very looks very more technological than most. Tell me about the song, and then tell me about the video. Yeah, well, what I did here, because as a creative artist that did found Devo and did co-write the songs and did direct the videos, I you know I get tired of being put on ice and not having Devo be active. So I had to, like, on my own, continue the spirit of what actually started Devo. And that was that we were a, a multimedia collaboration and an experimental art group. That's what we were. We weren't people that thought we were going to have a record deal on a label. We thought we were going to make short films driven by songs that we wrote that would have a narrative, when you put them all together, you'd kind of like be like the Three Stooges of rock and roll. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, deeper. <laughs> uh, only only uh, ostensibly foolish, but actually quite smart messaging underneath it all. So recently I just, I was so frustrated and I, you know, I got this call from a friend of mine who's, um, runs the uh, Raymond Scott Foundation, and he knew this guy from Real Gone Records who was trying to find me because they wanted to put out a piece of vinyl for Record Store Day that reissued my 2005 release of my satirical alter ego project called Jihad Jerry and the Evildoers. The album was called Mine is Not a Holy War. It was a war on stupidity, as futile as the war on drugs. Anyway, uh, uh, they go, do you have anything new? And I said, well, I had a couple unreleased tracks from that time, but I'd be more than happy to record a new song, but I'd have to do a video with it. And they went, oh, wow, okay. So it spurred me on to, to do what I'd been wanting to do for quite some time. And I'd been working with and talking to that friend of mine who I worked with on the video, his name is Davey Force, great artist in his own right, and a brilliant CGI guy. Uh, and he had been experimenting with uh, AI programs and deep learning. And I kept telling him this look I wanted, you know, this look I wanted. And, and he goes, well, it sounds a little like those stills on TikTok or early Andy Warhol photo screens. And I said, yeah, but it's got to be something that tracks at 30 seconds, you know, 30 frames per second. That's a whole different thing. And so he put his thinking cap on and worked his butt off. And we found a way to do it. 
So I came in with the idea and the song, and we worked together and produced it and directed it together, all in his little studio. And I really loved the the result because I was going for a slightly Marvel Comics cartoon world that was nevertheless connected to adult live action, but would be in, you know would be in its own dimension. So G.I. Jerry could have be timeless and, and have more adventures in the future, where it's like getting the next edition of a comic book. And I think we accomplished that. That's what I'm happy with. I think when you see the video with the song, it brings the song to life as a true piece of music video art should. It should. The song alone just can't cut it the way it does when you watch it together. Now, explain to me, because I'm not that bright, the uh, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, then the bullet. Explain that because, and I love that you do it twice, and then you have the little, I mean, it's just, it's cool, but I was sitting there going, are they Bitcoins? What are, I couldn't figure it out. What, explain that to me. Yeah, they are Bitcoin. <laughs> They're a parody of Bitcoins, yeah. <laughs> They're, uh, they're JJ coins, G.I. Jerry coins. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I was, I was reading about you. The, the, the background you had written, I'm guessing was you for G.I. Jerry, the backstory. Yeah. How did you yeah. come up with that? Because that's like something out of a, a sitcom. I mean, that could be a TV show, right. that whole character. When right. did you decide to do that? And how long did it take you to formulate it? I first wrote that up in 2004 as a response to my utter horror and disbelief at what, you know, W. Bush was doing with the ginned up uh, Iraq war and the fake evidence of, uh, you know, uh, elements of mass destruction, right? And using Colin Powell and people with credibility to sell it at the UN. And you could see the whole thing was just, uh, you know, a conspiracy plot hatched by Cheney and his pals uh, because this is what they wanted to do. <laughs> and it was the complete wrong thing to do. Like, if you want to energize and militarize and piss off the Muslim world and get the most whacked militant jihadists on your ass, you found the way to do it. And they did it. And then they acted surprised when we got retaliated on. You know, um, so I wrote that then, and I knew that G.I. Jerry would be, quote, misunderstood, not get the love. Although I thought that more people would understand the satire. They're looking at a 60-year-old man in a stupid, you know, white man, in a stupid Sam the Sham turban, you know, looks like Sam the Sham in a Pharaohs. Uh, I didn't think anybody would take it seriously, but of course... We live in those times where sense of humor has been trodden underfoot, and certainly fundamentalists of any flavor, whether it's Muslim fundamentalists, you know, Christian fundamentalists, Jewish fundamentalists, they're not known for their sense of humor. So I did get my share of uh, death threats and attacks, and uh, you know, jihad went dormant really fast. Uh, nobody, nobody got it. Jihad didn't get the love. That, that, that must be, you know, it must be hard as a performer because I, I have a background in performing too and I used to do stand-up comedy in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, you go up and you really craft a bit and it goes and it just falls flat. You just get 
pissed. You start, you start feeling like you're losing yourself on stage. Like you feel like, even though it's not, <laughs> you're not escaping. You are. What was it like when you took all this time to do this character? Did you ever just want to say, it's, it's a joke. It's, I mean, I mean, what came from your mind? <laughs> When you were just sitting there getting frustrated. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, I was shocked that people didn't get get it, right? And especially the things that Jihad wrote and the lyrics and the songs. I mean, I don't know what to say. You know, and there, there was the name check song, um, What's in a Name, done almost like a, you know, a, a 70s funk in a black exploitation movie or something, you know, some, something that, that, um, what's his name? The, the famous black guy that wrote the song for Shaft. Uh, Richard Roundtree? No, he was Shaft. Anyway, it, it, you know, it was inspired by his music. And I thought, okay, people will, certainly on this one, they'll get it. That G.I.'s telling the story about when he was just a little boy. And they didn't. And I got the death threats. And I got my, you know, radio turned its back on me. I had a big interview at Sirius XM in New York when that came out. And the guy actually liked several songs on the record. He most liked uh, the lead track that was called uh, Now is the Time. And uh, he goes, you know, man, I would play the hell out of this if this was a Devo track. But I can't. I can't say Jihad Jerry and the evildoers. I'll get my ass hung. I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not playing this shit. And he goes, it's too bad because for some odd reason it sounds like Devo. And I'm like, well, you're looking at Devo, pal. Um, how could I do anything else other than what I've always done? Like, you know, it was Mark and I that wrote all, all the songs, but it was just you know that 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 signaled me that I was uh, I was dead out of the gate, you know that it was an uphill battle not worth fighting. Well, you know, Devo was so innovative, and you've been innovative. How did this all start? What kind of kid were you? Were you like a were you a precocious kid? Were you a really smart kid? What what were you like as a kid? Oh, you know, I was a, I was a well behaved. Uh, you know, polite kid that had authoritarian blue-collar parents that put the fear of God into me and, you know, school was everything, so I made sure I got A's and B's and I was forced to go to Catholic school. And, uh, you know, obviously what happens there is that it's inevitable that when you grow up with that type of repression, and that type of being told what to do and not to question authority, you know that as soon as you start getting your teenage hormones, you're going to question authority. (laughs) And boy, did I. You know, and I was an avid reader. So I was taking it upon myself at 13 and 14 and 15 to read things like, you know, Animal Farm and, you know, uh, Huxley, and uh, I remember getting caught with uh, the D.H. Lawrence book, um, 
Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia? Temple Gordon, the girl who gets raped by Popeye. Uh, is one of his most famous books. Uh, and that, you know, practically got sent to a reform school for that one. Uh, I had to go and sit with the priests and nuns and my parents and everybody's crying. I had a month worth of penances. Uh, that's, you know, let's just put it this way. By the time I was 16, I was looking for a way out of the house. <laughs> now, now, I, now you, went to Kent, found, you went to Kent State, right? Yeah. Now, what, what did you major? I mean, when you, when you went into college, like me, when I went to college, I come from a waspy family so the same thing you know you, you go in business management because you, you don't really know what you're going to do at 18 I, I didn't know i was like i i'm not sure so what's easy well my dad was in business what what was your major what were you aiming to do well luckily you know there were two teachers i had in high school that took an interest in my fate they knew like this kid shouldn't be going to vietnam and he should go to college and they knew my parents were unable to help me there, and in fact antagonistic towards those kind of people that went to college. And uh, and they they said, you know, you really excel at writing. We're gonna we're gonna make sure you apply to several colleges here and take the SATs. And uh, they helped me through that process, and I got accepted. But the only place I could afford was Kent State University. I got accepted there too, but any anything else was out of state and would have. I wasn't getting enough of a scholarship to cover it, so I got a work study scholarship at Kent State as a journalist. So my major became twentieth century comparative literature. So I was going to get a BA. And in my sophomore year, you know, after a couple acid trips and keeping notebooks and drawings, I decided I was going to be an artist like Andy Warhol. <laughs> so I added studio art as a major. So I had a double major, 16-hour course loads every quarter, you know, busting my ass, burning the candle at both ends, and, you know, set out to graduate with a BA and a BFA. And then Kent State... May 4th, 1970 happened in my senior year. How did that affect you? Because I know you knew I knew you knew two of the people. Yeah, I sure did. Uh, Jeffrey Miller and Allison Krauss, both from out of state, from upper state New York, actually. And uh, all bets were off after that. Uh, I had was probably a nervous breakdown and then PSTD. <laughs> I mean, when you see people shot at close range M1 rifles with military full metal jacket bullets and you see what the exit wounds look like, you change. <laughs> I mean, until then, maybe I was a live and let live groovy teenage hippie, but it was no more Mr. Nice Guy after that. So how does Devo end up coming about through all of this? Well, I lost my scholarship in, to graduate school because I was a member of SDS and the uh, Governor Rhodes made a pact with several other governors that all this uh, protest had been caused by out-of-state agitators. And so if you belonged to a militant group or an anti-war group, you weren't allowed to go away to another university in another state. 
So I was disinvited to Ann Arbor University, had to go back to Kent State with my tail between my legs. And that turned out to be a very fortuitous event because that year then, starting in the fall of 1970, there was a program that had already been put in place before all the horror went down where they were bringing in visiting professors uh, from like King's College in England, Berkeley in California, Columbia in New York. These were the coolest people. And of course, me and my artsy academic friends, which, you know, you gravitated towards one one another because you were the fringe group at a university that was otherwise pumping out MBAs. Uh, we, we hung with these people and they turned out to be the people that had already taken the red pill, the people that could give us more references and rationalizations and explanations for what we were thinking and trying to articulate. And when I say we, it was, I had a couple close friends. One was poet, one was a studio artist, but we were all like, Thinkers. Every night we'd gather, smoke pot, talk, philosophically argue, discourse. It was all a part of creating ideas, like what are we going to write about next? What are we going to draw next? What are we going to do next? And so I met these people, like Ed Dorn from the Black Mountain College School of Poetry, who was friends with Ginsburg. And I've met Eric Mottram from King's College in England, and he had published books and been friends with people like Jeff Nuttall that created post-bomb culture, you know, a lot of lefties, uh, as they we would have been called, a lot of, and, 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 and he knew, uh, um, God, what's wrong with me? I'm getting senile here. Uh, the French, uh, the French social scientist, man of letters, philosopher, that everybody took to be a commie. He wasn't a commie, but uh, he started putting out books then. And, and, and anyway, it all gelled. It all gelled. And what we'd been talking about, we had called de-evolution, my friend Bob uh, Lewis and I. And these people, these professors just laughed. We They found us so humorous. They found us so clever and strident and silly. And, and so they kind of egged us on, like, oh, you want to talk about de-evolution? Okay, well, here, read this, you know. So there we were, and that's when I met Mark Mothersbaugh. And I was playing bass in a blues band, and he was playing keyboards in a progressive rock band. And he was a guy that was drawing a lot of doodles and portraits and very transgressive stuff. And he had seen some of my art in a show. I was two years older than him. He had seen it in a graduate art show. And so we sought each other out. And I said, well, what would Devo music sound like? We're doing this Devo art. What would Devo music sound like? So we started trying to, you know, find proof of concept, right? Gain of function. Like, uh, let's make Devo music and... If it sounds like other music, it isn't Devo music. So if it sounds like a progression you've heard on the radio or a genre that you're already playing, 
throw it out. It's over. Stop me. So I agreed to quit playing blues licks. He, he, he agreed to quit playing prog rock licks. And, uh, and we started stripping it down, tabla rasa. And we'd have to explain to each other, why are we adding that sound? Why are we going to this chord change? Are we going to a chord change because you think you should? Let's not. You know, and we, so we were making minimal, crude music, but using, you know, the mini Moog, the Arc, Odyssey, uh, electronic drums, my crude Gibson bass. I mean, we were, we were just, uh, we were experimenting. That's what we were doing. Do you think it helped you? Because as you said, you, you weren't doing it to become rock stars. You were doing it, you know, for the visual art. Do you think that helped you as a band in getting the sound where you didn't have to worry, where it's like, oh, wait a second, this will never sell. I mean, did that help you just being so creative yeah. and original? Yeah, because that, that conversation never came up about selling. <laughs> it just wouldn't even have occurred to us, right? And we knew that no self-respecting rock and roll guitar player would have anything to do with us. That's why we enlisted our brothers, because our brothers understood us, having grown up with us, and it was a shorthand. And they were willing to play strange patterns and whacked out sounds on their guitars. They were willing to do it. And, and uh, so, so we couldn't have done it without this Three Musketeers effort of, you know, everybody being there together, collaborating for a single vision. And that single vision had nothing to do with trying to get a label. <laughs> now, what was it like the early gigs? Because the music's different. Were you always wearing the outfits? Did that was that from the gecko, or did you start in the beginning when you would play a gig going up in street clothes? Well, it started with um, I found some firemen's jumpsuits that they would wear. They would wear when they were in the firehouse, and they were just working. Like they were their work suits, and they were very cheap in this industrial catalog. So we started by wearing the firemen's work suits with clear plastic masks. Those really creepy cheap masks that were around in the '70s that just had some eyebrows and some lips, and, and it was clear plastic, so it was your face, right? Very creepy. Uh, something you'd rob a bank with, uh, and that's how we went out. And, of course, we got booed and laughed at, beer cans thrown at us, you know, all the, all the things you would expect. Screamed off the stage, threatened off the stage. What made you keep doing it? I mean, a lot of people, if they get shunned, like I remember me when I did comedy, the first time I did great. The second time, I ate it. I mean, I had no laughs. And I, I came back like three months later, and I said, well, I got to do this. But what made you guys keep going? Well, that negative response really got us off because because we hated where we lived and we hated the culture and we hated these people that were screaming at us and throwing beer cans at us we thought this is great look at that we pissed them off ha 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 then we'd figure out how to do it better next time now how did the record contract come about was it through bowie did you meet bowie somewhere or how did this all start well, Bowie certainly was helpful, but not in the end, not really. I mean, he did he did give us uh, validity, and his imprimatur uh, got 
higher level people interested in us. But uh, it was all through the sweat of our own brow. I mean, we, you know, we, we were in basements and garages for 1974, 75, 76. Then in 77, I thought we were really good at that point. I thought what we, we had come up with, we were really good at doing. And by that point in 77, of course, we were all aware of the punk movement coming out of England and aware of the punk scene in New York. So I drove to CBGB's with my girlfriend on her spring break. She was an art teacher for elementary school. And I pretended to be Devo's manager, and I had our self-produced single on Boogie Boy Records, and I had the little movie we had made, The Truth About De-Evolution, and I had all this you know, marketing copy I had written, uh, pretending it was from other people, like quotes from other people. <laughs> you know, it was a complete DIY con job, and I went to CBGB's, and I talked Illy Crystal into giving us a date there. And then having that under my belt, I went over to Max's saying, well, CBGB's is playing us uh, in April. You know, what about you? And of course, they didn't want to be left out. And then um, I went to Alan Betrock because I had seen that there was a paper called the New York Rocker that was a free alternative music paper that was distributed all around New York and all around, you know, downtown New York and where Max's is and Washington Square. And I showed him everything and he flipped. He loved it and he wrote it up. So by the time we went back to New York, we packed the house. Now, what did people get in that show? Did you did you did you get a different crowd? It wasn't the people you hated. Now you're in a in a scene where there's a hustling, it's a, it's a different movement. It's a different music scene. How did you do in those New York? Well, City shows? Yeah. yeah. Cause you got your outcast punk hipster crowd and we were aggressive enough. The music was, you know, aggressive and strident and angry enough that it kind of tangentially fit in with their, they're orthodox music. You know, orthodox punk was like these three chords, this way, you sing like this, you wear these ripped jeans, you have the safety pins, you know, here's what you do. And of course, that isn't what Debo was doing. But musically and sound-wise, we had enough power and dissonance that they, they lost it over songs like Mongoloid and Uncontrollable Urge, you know, and Gut Feeling. And so uh, we were accepted. You know, it's like, we accept you. We accept you. One of so, And then we took a trip out to the West Coast because Kip Cohen of A&M Records, you know, had heard the, the native drums and the smoke signals from New York and said, oh, I better check this out. And he paid us $2,000 to dr- drive out to uh, L.A., and uh, showcase at the Starwood, which was a club that was like a second-rate whiskey a go-go, you know. But once you hit it at the Starwood, you'd play the whiskey. And um, he promptly turned his back on us. He saw 
four songs and said, fuck this. <laughs> he goes, you know, I got burned with the tubes. I got burned with the tubes three years ago, and I'm not getting burned again. <laughs> so, but there we were, right? And and the punk crowd, which were all reading uh, a magazine called Slash, uh, put out by Steve Samioff, they, they were spreading the word. So club owners asked us back. So I refused to go back to Akron when the band wanted to and talked everybody into hanging out and fighting it out. And it just, uh, it snowballed quickly. And that's when uh, Tony Basil and, and uh, Dean Stockwell and uh, uh, Neil Young came forward and, and uh, sanctioned the band. They loved us. And uh, Tony had worked with David Bowie and she brought along Iggy Pop. And Iggy had been touring with David on the Idiot Tour. David was playing keyboards for him. So David heard the tapes, saw the first music video and flipped out, sent us to his lawyer, Stan Diamond, to try to make a deal. But the deal he offered was very bad. Uh, and so I knew enough about deals at that point that we pushed back and said, well, we love David Bowie, he's our hero, but the deal's got to be like this. So we spent that fall negotiating a deal with Warner Brothers Records where Bowie would produce and would come out on Warner Brothers. And that's what was going to happen. But he kept pushing it, kept delaying it because of all his projects and being so, so busy with film. And um, I got really antsy because... I thought we were missing the zeitgeist because, I mean, Blondie had released, uh, you know, the Ramones had released, the Talking Heads had released, the Sex Pistols had released. Uh, it, it just looked like we were now going to look like we were not in on the beginning of this, that we were, you know, imitators, right? And Bowie said, okay, I understand that. He goes... You guys fly to New York and you meet Brian. Brian Eno. He's ready to go. I think Brian can do this for you. He'll do it at the same studio with the same engineer I was going to use in Germany. <clears throat> and so we flew there in December and we met Brian. And Mark and I really liked him. And we had, of course, liked everything he did. And we said, okay, because he was ready to go. So beginning of February, we flew to... Uh, Cologne, Germany, and then drove an hour and a half out into the countryside to some little godforsaken town in the winter called Neunkirchen. And Connie Plank was there. His studio had been built in a barn. And we did the record there in three weeks. Now, who decided, when you released uh, Satisfaction, who decided on, on that song? Well, him is a part of a uh, spontaneous jam. We hadn't intended to cover Satisfaction. It was just all this fantastic experimentation where my brother started playing a figure. And, you know, I laughed. I went, oh, that's great. Sounds like Chinese rock and roll. And uh, 
And then Alan Myers started going, boo, to it, which was backwards. It sounded ridiculous. It's like, it's putting the accent on the one. And, and I go, I don't know. Now that sounds like robot reggae. And I, I start playing da 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 and, and it fitted in between his beats. And then Mark started going down, 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 over on synth. And we're all laughing. And we're all like, keep that up, keep that up. Speed it up, speed it up. And Mark started singing Paint It Black, Paint it black over that. And my brother stopped playing and stopped everybody. He said, no, that, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. Sing Satisfaction. So we started it back up. Mark started singing Satisfaction. I added a change so that it could be more like Satisfaction. And that's how that happened. Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, they had seen your first video. You were so before the, 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 the trend with videos. Was that just because... You always wanted to make videos? I mean, did you start from the very early days making videos for all your songs? That was the idea. That was, that, like I told you at the beginning of this, that was the whole idea. That was an idea I had with uh, my good friend who was a filmmaker, Chuck Statler, who we ended up working with. And, of course, Mark was on board for that. He totally agreed. This was the idea. And, uh, you know, we were never... Never at a loss for ideas. We were at a loss for resources and opportunities. So we saved up some money. The first thing we could do was the 10-minute film that you saw. The Truth About De-Evolution, where you saw an early version of Jocko Homo and, uh, and uh, Secret Agent Man. Now, what happens when you all of a sudden start getting recognized like people are knowing you you're getting bigger how does what's going through your mind for a stage show now because you have the fans and you guys are creative what was your aspects when you would go on the road in the in the beginning when you started getting the newfound fame well it was exciting because once again ideas were piled this high none of which we'd ever had the opportunity or the means to do now we had the means to do some of them. And we already had a stage show, but now we could add production and control the lights and the colors of the lights and the look of the stage, all the things we couldn't do before. And so it was exciting because we were sitting on so many ideas. It was like, okay, which of these can we do cheaply? Now, the video whip, it becomes a huge hit. How did that video come about? Because that was in the early days of MTV, I believe. Um, I'm sorry, how did which video come about? Whip It. Oh. Well, that was all the way into 1980. We had, we had already done, God, one, two, three, four, five, six. We'd already done six videos before Whip It. So, Whip It was the first time that we did a video after the fact. I didn't have a concept for, for Whip It when we recorded it. And nobody in the, at the record company thought that that was ever going to be a single 
They weren't interested in it. You know. Uh, and what happened was while we were touring clubs, Cal Rudman down in Florida, who was a big regional DJ, back in the time when DJs had a lot of power, a lot of autonomy, he had the Cal Rudman report that everybody in the Southwest read and the Southeast. And uh, of course he had been given the record by Warner Brothers and told that girl you want, girl you want. And he didn't like girl you want. So he listened to the record. Like, here's a DJ with ears who actually listened to the records. And he decided Whip It was the shit, as they say. So he started on his own with no payola, no coke, no horrors. He started playing it. And it took off. And so, Warners, we had a two-week break where we were going to play some more clubs on the West Coast. And Warners said, you got to make a video. Like, now they were converted to, from Devo's, why do you want to make videos? That's stupid, right? Now, it's like, you got to make a video. And MTV was only in three cities at that point. So, we made the video, and... Uh, and the reason I made that video and the reason we did that idea was that all the DJs were making dirty comments on the air about it being about S&M or beating off, right? Like they, we'd come in and they go, hey, Diva, whip it. <laughs> so, so I thought, okay, we'll make a video that just gives them exactly what they want, takes it too far. So Mark... Whips the clothes off of a woman in in the you know while the cowboys cheer in the corral and the band plays in the corral, and that all came from a men's magazine from 1965. Because my friends and I used to collect these really terrible, like you know, cheesy nudist mags, <laughs> men's mags that were really bad. I think this one was called Dude. And it had a feature, like each of them had a feature, right? This featured a man who would, who was a stunt man in Hollywood who had quit the business and moved to Arizona and bought a, uh, a stable and raised horses. And his wife had been a stripper. And uh, three times a week at noon in the corral, for all the people that came to visit the dude ranch, he'd whip his wife's clothes off. He'd whip her, he'd whip his clothes, her clothes off down to a bikini. And it was, it was a three-page spread that showed all this, right? Well, that was that. That was in a magazine I had, you know, collected from a secondhand store. It's like, let's do this. Right? And everybody goes, yeah, let's do that. Well, it is one of those videos, that, and everyone remembers it. You know, I remember, as I said, being in college in the 80s. Where did you come up with the hats? Because at every costume party I went to in college, some would always try to do, some would always try to dress up like Devo. And yeah. they'd always have, it'd be like the crappiest looking, like they'd have like, 
taped cardboard. It just didn't cardboard, look right. It looked yeah. like it looked like a layered cake. It looked more like a wedding cake. Who came up with the hat idea? I'll show you. Hold on. Oh wow. This is a milk glass lighting fixture that hung in my elementary school. The elementary school was built in the 30s. It was all art deco. This hung from a ceiling with three chains with a light inside it. I used to stare at it because I hated being there. I hated the nuns and the priests. And I used to love this form. So way later on in my life, when we're getting ready to do Freedom of Choice record, I thought of flipping it over taking off the last tier, so there's only four tiers, so it's the scale of a human head, and making vacuum form versions of it, so it's very light, light plastic, and we could wear them. That's it. That's amazing, because it is, it is such a uh, item in pop culture. Everybody knows the Devo hat. Right. Now, as you're getting bigger, and MTV is bigger and you're getting your videos played as you said as mtv started getting bigger and they are playing videos they all never had a ton of videos how are your lives changing because now it's got to be you're always on the go where the record companies want you to get that next album out where they try to put you in the road or how is your guys life changing yeah there was that sweet spot where suddenly you know we had to rebook everything we were playing at because it was too small now because of Whippet and MTV, we're not playing four and five hundred seaters. Now we're playing three to five thousand seaters. And I can buy some nice clothes and I can get into a lot of restaurants because they everybody recognizes us. <laughs> and uh, so there was that sweet spot for about a year where we were heroes, where the music video vision we had starting in 1973 paid off and uh and then of course what happens mtv does not become this harbinger of distribution for a new art form it just ties its playlist to the top 40 national radio playlist and videos become a factory of just promotional throw away baby pictures for the record company. It doesn't matter how cliched and silly they are. It matters where the song is charting. So you'd watch a song that was a hit on the radio with a terrible video 20 times a day on MTV. And suddenly Debo wasn't getting played on MTV because, hey, Debo, look, I don't see you here. See this 40? See this list? You're not here. <laughs> you know, in your in some of the videos, you know, once you you directed Whip It, right? Yeah. Now, now with the videos after that, like you know, Beautiful World and Through Being Cool, did you direct them, or or what was yeah. your guy? Okay, now what was your? Were you concept, or was it like a movie's done with it? Were you a, like the writer and director, or was it an input from different people, and then you directed it and brought the vision across? You know, the the ideas either came. From me or Mark and me. 
we sat down and we hashed out everything. And of course, I was more like the writer, director. He's the actor. He was like, he's the main actor. He's going to sell it. And he would come up with a lot of great detail ideas that, that bring it to life. He was always good at that. Now, it's obvious that you love directing him because you went on to direct other yeah. Parents. What made you decide to go that way? Because it's something that, you know, now you're going, it's your vision, but before you're like the Spielberg, you know, it's your whole vision and everything. And now it's someone else's vision. What did you bring to the table and how would you approach some of these artists that you said, like the cars, how did you approach the cars to direct their video? Well, they approached me. I think a lot of bands were afraid to do videos back then. They didn't get it. They thought, if you're a real rock and roll band, you're not going to make these videos. They, they thought it was wanky, you know. Um, but then they realized, you know, that they had to, that this is something that was happening. The manager is press, pressuring them, the label pressuring them. And I think they chose me because they thought, okay, he's been on both sides of the camera. He's not going to fuck around with us. We can trust him. And frankly, with, with music videos, the way you got a job from the beginning as a director was to write the concept. You know, you would compete with six other directors, right? Write a 10-page treatment and you either get chosen or not. So, you are coming up with a video idea for the song. Now, how did you, I know you directed something for Rush and some other bands that weren't per se the genre Devo was in and the, the, the experience you had of directing. How did you approach those videos? Did you sit there and say, okay, I have to do something completely different? Or how would you get your view across to them when it's sort of, you're in a different area now? Well, sure. You're, you're, you're problem solving. You're, you're secondary creativity. That's what I call it. It's like, you know, it's not like Devo when Mark and I sat down and wrote a song and had an idea of, of the film all within like 15 minutes, right? Where it, it, you're, you're bringing something to life that didn't exist. Like Jimi Hendrix, he writes Purple Haze. Was he trying to solve a problem? No. Did anybody think they would ever even like Purple Haze? No. He made people like something and want something they didn't even know six months earlier that they'd ever tolerate. That was Devo, too. This was not like that. This is, you're using your craft and your knowledge and your creativity to solve somebody else's problem. And you're trying to do something for them that fits them the way I did something for myself and Devo that fit us. So, of course, you're not going to do put Devo on them. And so, yes, I... I wasn't trying to make a Devo video ever. <laughs> now, how did you parlay over into the commercials? Well, finally, people in the commercial world started taking video directors seriously. And I'd been around a long time directing music videos at that point. And so I got an opportunity with uh, three national Miller Lite spots. Which ones were they? They were... Uh, 
They were the one involving the contest, the fake contest for the cheerleaders being sent to the Super Bowl. And this was all Kenny, a friend of Dick's. And Dick and Kenny were like normal guys that weren't ad guys. And so they were determining the commercials. That was the joke, of course. The ad agencies created these, you know, everyman schmucks who were supposedly responsible for what you were about to see. <laughs> and they were and they were ridiculous. They were Dada. They were incredible. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, they were, it was like Kelly the Farm Girl. And so Kelly the Farm Girl had her own song. Bow, wow, wow, Miller Lite. Squeaky, sweet Miller Lite. It's really good. Right? <laughs> And she had farm animals around her that were all animatronic doing the, the squeaks and the barks and that, you know, when they're supposed to. And so the whole thing is a fake set, you know, like a, a really idealized 1950s Technicolor barn set with a backdrop of the Midwest and blue sky, the hay bales. You know, they knew I could do this stuff. <laughs> How did they parallel, you know, when you think about it? Because music videos, as you said, they're completely, with, with with video, with commercials, you're working a lot of times with trained actors. I mean, because actors know there's a lot of good money in a commercial. How did they parallel doing both for you? Well, you know, when you were working with a good agency, it's fun. Because good creative then, you know, is exciting and and it doesn't feel like work because casting is fun, shooting is fun, editing is fun. But that was that was the exception. Most of these things were, you know, derivative and tired and very uptight. Even if an agency came on hip, in the end, the idea you signed on to do isn't the idea you get to do. And uh, the client... Clients were always uh, distrustful of the agency. And they're always there on set. And they're always second-guessing you and stopping you from what you want to do. So it was, not, it was very stressful. Very stressful. Well, when it comes to videos, you know, as you said, you, you have the latest one for your new song. And you've directed so many. How has the video making change for you? Do you find it easier now because things are digital or did you like the old way you did it? I liked both. I mean, I, I, you're right about it being easier now. You're right about you got many more arrows in your quiver, more tools in the shed and things don't cost as much. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff you can do with really rudimentary. I mean, people shoot old videos on their iPhones, right, on their iPhone 12s, uh, and, and it doesn't suffer, it looks cool. Uh, you could never do that in the beginning, it was a much bigger deal, you know, the means of production were in the hands of a few, you know, equipment rentals were expensive, but what it did make you do is really think everything out, you couldn't be jived, you, you had to think everything out, commit to it. And you couldn't make mistakes because mistakes were going to cost a lot of money. So what you would see is very, very thoughtful, worked out ideas where everything now is just like, 
off the cuff and slop. Like, here, we can try this, we can do this, and then we can just put it all together like a chop salad. But, um, it's like there's not as big of a commitment to a concept. Now, do you see more videos in your future? Uh, are you writing? What are your, what are your, are you going to keep coming out? Because this video is great and it's, it's just, it's fun. I mean, it's a cool video and, and you know, so the ideas are there. Are you still going to keep putting out content? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I hope to, I have a lot more songs for Jihad Jerry now uh, than, than I'm going to pay you back. I have a lot more where that came from. And in fact, I've been talking with Josh Freeze and with Davey Force about the next one which is the next one I want to record is called The Invisible Man. And uh, I sure hope I get to do it soon. And wait till you see when The Invisible Man reveals himself. <laughs> now, what's, Surprise. The, what's, what's the future of Devo? That's a good question. You know, um, I mean, Devo could be doing so much. And Devo gets offered such lucrative concert offers over and over and over. But, you know, Mark is always the guy that's not interested. So it's frustrating and sad. Well, it is. But your music is great, and we're glad that you're around. I'm glad we listened to Devo. And one more question. Your love, I heard you're a venter. When did your love of wine come? Real early on, but my opportunity to make wine only came in 2012. So I'm putting out my ninth vintage of Pinot Noir right now. The brand is called the 50 by 50. You can see it all at the 50by50.com, all letters. I put out Pinot Noir, I make a rosé, and I started making a white wine. And um, it's all from a single vineyard in the Sonoma Coast, because I think that's where the Pinot Noir grape grows best in California. I think it makes the best wines there. Um, and it's a small, you know, I only produced like 420 cases last year. Um, it's a brand waiting to be discovered. Uh, anybody who tastes it knows it's serious wine. It's real. It's not rot gut. It tastes great. And it's just a matter of creating demand and getting it out there. Well, that's awesome, people. So go check that website out. Also, go check out his website, Gerald V. Casale. And uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've been a big Devo fan all my whole life. So, people, go check out Jerry's work. Go Jihad Jerry. Check that out. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 890 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.